This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. I'd just like to take a moment to run you through, give you an idea of what I do to get ready to record the script every week. Uh, Brent, Sam's producer, sends a uh, a script for me letting me know who's going to be on the show that day. And oftentimes he has to walk me through the correct pronunciation of the guest's name. After we do that, I stand in front of a mirror, I put a smile on my face, and I lift my chin so that my voice comes across as approachable and cheerful so that uh, you feel invited to be a part of the show that day. All right, so as you heard there, you hear Aunt Betty for maybe six or seven seconds at the start of every Friday episode we do on this show, but it takes Aunt Betty a lot more than just six or seven seconds to make that happen. Here's the thing, listener. Every episode of this show takes a lot of time. This episode you're about to hear, it took months to reach you. We started out talking with folks at Netflix back in October about my guest, who you will meet soon. My guest and I spent almost three hours together, a three-hour interview. We had a bunch of microphones there to record the whole thing. And it took even more hours to turn all of that into 30 minutes of wonderful listening for you. It took a lot of work, but it's work that we love to do. And I'm asking you right now to support that work by supporting your local public radio station. If you go to donate.npr.org Sam, you can find the local station of your choosing and give. Donate.npr.org slash Sam. Thank you. Hey, y'all from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Merry Christmas to all those celebrating. Merry Festivus for the rest of us. Today, I have for all of you a very, very special gift. I am bringing you a conversation with Samin Nostrat. A lot of you have probably already watched her Netflix series. It's called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. A lot of you have probably also read her book. It has the same name. That book won Samin a James Beard Award, and more than a year after its release, it is still on many bestseller lists. Today, Samin tells me the stories behind that show and that book and her. And this conversation took a lot to make it happen. Actually, Samin and I wanted to be in a kitchen together, but my kitchen is just sad. I ain't got no spices. I ain't really got no food. I got an empty fridge most of the time. I do not cook a lot. So I borrowed someone else's kitchen. Hello. Hi. Welcome Hi. to Not My House. <laughs> Samin and I hung out in the kitchen of my NPR colleague and dear friend, Angie. Angie and her family have a real grown-up kitchen. We'll Is that. this a shoes-off house? <laughs> no. Okay. That's Hi. Angie. Hi. Anywho, fun backstory to this. On the day we met, Samin was rushing from one place to the other. We had been messaging back and forth about what to actually cook together. And then she was like, it's cool. I'll pick up the stuff. I'm going to make a run to Trader Joe's. This is why a person should not go to Trader Joe's when they're hungry and on the phone and behind schedule. On that TJ's run, she also got herself some snacks to eat before we cooked. Okay, these are Trader Joe's. They're the green cheese and chili tamales. They're like, and I buy them. There's two in a package. I buy like three packages at a time and leave them in my office freezer at work so that like 
every anytime I'm like there at yeah. you know, six PM and I'm like, What am I gonna eat? <laughs> yeah, they're so good. I love that a celebrity chef is giving me permission to eat frozen Trader Joe's food. I think as I mean, you're allowed to eat whatever you want. I know, but, yeah. but but like to feel good about it. Oh, I don't yeah. feel guilty about I it. I mean anymore. those ones are really Delicious. Yeah. The only yeah, thing like more awesome than knowing that a big deal famous chef like Samin loves like a, Trader Joe's yeah, tamales is that she also asked me what I wanted from that TJ's run. You got my favorite dark chocolate almonds. Those with are sea really good. salt and tomato sugar. Oh my God. They have good texture. They really do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what has made Samin and her show and her book so popular. She can walk seamlessly between the world of ordinary, everyday food while also traveling all over the place, cooking and eating with some of the biggest names in the biz. Samin writes a food column in the New York Times Magazine. She trained under the renowned chef Alice Waters. She has worked with food writer Michael Pollan. But on screen and in person, she is as accessible and relatable and down to earth as your favorite Trader Joe's comfort food. <laughs> like, did I mention? You know, I definitely feel really... L- she microwaved the tamales. They're frozen tamales. <gasps> yes! Tamale time! <laughs> After Samin got to eat a little bit... That's good. It is so good. That's good. We sat down to talk. They're really yummy. Samin is someone still adjusting to celebrity. When we met, she had just gotten off a flight from Berkeley, where she lives. She went straight to the store herself to get some cookware to use at her Airbnb before she met up with me. And then after our chat, she had to go to a book signing. Uh, And then on top of all that, a reporter from The Guardian was about to profile her. It was a lot. Although you are still, like, entourage-free. You went to LAX by yourself. You got your rental car by yourself. You rode around and got a pot and pan at TJ Maxx by yourself. Oh, I got three. I got so many things at TJ Maxx. What did you get at TJ Maxx? I got three pots for making Persian rice, Mm -hmm. two baking sheets, Mm -hmm. and a bunch of Tupperwares. Oh, and a big strainer. At TJ Maxx. Oh, yeah. Home Goods. That one on Sepulveda. It's a good one. I think this is good (laughs) to hear, though, because, like, I want to do better in my life by food. Mm-hmm. And I want to not, like, break my budget. Yeah, you don't have to go to the fans. There's, like, so many tricks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll have a few of those tricks for you a bit later. But first, we should explain, for those of you who do not know yet, uh, what Samin means when she uses the phrase salt, fat, acid, heat. It's the name of her book and her show, and it is basically her philosophy on food. Samin breaks all food down into those four categories, salt, fat, acid, heat. And she says once you understand those categories and how they all work together, you don't even need recipes anymore. You'll just know how to make food taste good. I mean, my dream was for this book to have no recipes, but no publisher was going to buy that. (laughs) Yes, yes. Although, like, you do approach the recipe differently. And so what we're going to cook today later is this dish in your book called Conveyor Belt Chicken. Mm -hmm. And part of why I picked it is because... As you know, on this page, it's an essay. It's not a list with measurements and numbers. And you tell the story of, like, how you made this dish, and you kind of, like, made it in a pinch and just improvised and figured it out. Then your friend improvised and figured something, this thing out. And all of a sudden, you have this dish. And so I'm reading the essay, waiting for, like, the ingredients list. And I was like, oh, it's in there. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) Totally. That's cool. Yeah. There couldn't, I couldn't do a ton of those, but this was one where there's only two, like, I guess if you count oil, there's three ingredients, oil, salt, and chicken. Yeah. So it didn't, three great ingredients. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think I wanted to empower people in different ways with different um, formats of recipes to start to be able to think about 
how the like world of cooking is so much smaller than you think. That idea is the heart of salt, fat, acid, heat. Just four basic elements can make or break a dish. Commit to mastering them, and you can become not only a good cook, but a great one. So Samin is using her platform to talk about good food and making good food accessible. But she's also discussing food and race and gender and how the food world can diversify itself and elevate women of color. Samin is a daughter of immigrants from Iran, and she wanted a bunch of female chefs in her show. So she meets female chefs all over the world, like in this scene with the renowned pasta chef from Tuscany. It's really just flour and eggs to make handmade pasta, right? Yes. And the eggs give the richness, the incredible fat. And you used more eggs than I had ever seen. This is the reason why in Italy we call this pasta all'uovo. Pasta all'uovo, yes. That is flour and eggs. The show, y'all, it is just beautiful to watch. It is cinematically shot, kind of in the vein of another Netflix food series, Chef's Table. You'll see Samin in these, like, sweeping drone shots of an Italian olive orchard or sampling fruit in this sunny citrus market in Mexico or hanging out on this chilly fishing dock in Japan eating fresh-caught sushi. It's just beautiful. I love beautiful things. Um, Yeah. I care a lot about making beautiful things accessible for everyone. Yeah. And I think a lot of the credit to, to the way that it looks, at least as far as my imagination and what I could imagine that it could look like goes to chef's table, which I think paved a road for me to understand what a food show could look like. Yeah. Because before that, I never really saw anything well, so cinematic. And I think cooking show is just like, okay, you're in the kitchen. You're in a studio. <laughs> exactly. With like studio lighting. Yeah. And I mean, there's value to that. Absolutely. I mean, Julia Child had, in a lot of ways, like the lowest production value of all time. And yet we learned so, so, so much from her. And actually, in doing research for the show, I watched a lot of old clips of hers. And watching her and the fact that she could do entire scenes, entire dishes in one take without stopping, without a break, is incredible. She could talk for 14, sometimes over 20 minutes without stopping, without making one mistake. I mean, my joke on camera or on, on our crew was seven takes a mean <laughs> <laughs> i want us to start getting ready to cook okay. this conveyor belt chicken yeah. but as we get ready tell me what's been the biggest change for you since the show i know we've talked about it i think earlier. the amount like the the people recognize me everywhere i go all the time yeah and what do they say that's the first thing you hear often most you know Oh my God, is it you? Do <laughs> <laughs> you want to do more stuff on camera? You're good at it. I think, it. yeah, I, I really enjoy it. I okay. really enjoy having a new medium for storytelling. Yeah. It's not my life goal to be a television star. Like, okay. I think as long as I have another idea that makes sense for me to do it, I would like to do it. But I think probably what it'll be is that I do one more thing. Yeah. And then once I have some power, <laughs> then, <laughs> then what I'm going to do is like open the door for other people behind me and pull up other because the interesting thing is seeing a big part of what people have been so excited about makes me a little bit sad actually like Mm. the number of think pieces and they're so overexcited to see somebody different you know on camera and i'm like you're really starved for this we as a community are really starved Mm -hmm. for this and i already to some extent had the experience of feeling like the only brown 
cookbook writer, you know, mm-hmm. not, not not of all cookbooks, but certainly of like the general cookbooks that have now been accepted. I into can't the name canon. another. And so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so usually when you're like not a white person, you write a book about your family's cook, you know, your yeah. heritage cooking. And yeah. so, which is not a bad thing, but then somehow your identity becomes the topic rather than your work. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want to be the only one and I don't, it's going to get low. It's already kind of lonely in certain ways and it's definitely mm. going to get lonelier, I mm. think. So I feel like it's my responsibility and also joy yeah. <laughs> and to like hurry up along the others yeah, behind me as fast as possible. I want you to give me an example of that loneliness you speak of. Uh, what do you mean? Um, a moment hmm. when you felt Oh, I mean, it. I have a lot of loneliness. In my life. <laughs> I'm trying to think of, you know, um, well, being the token, a, a t- like tokenization, you know, being the only brown person on a panel that happens a lot. And I've, I've learned now to insist otherwise and to insist that I won't participate unless, you know, we diversify. And often, and I like, I have at the ready list of names. Cause yeah. a lot of times the excuse is like, couldn't find Oh, anybody. couldn't find one. <laughs> And you're like, and, uh, and yeah, I'm like, here. Let me unroll the scroll. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like and me so, and another at least. Yeah, yeah, me and another at least. And it, the other could be anything. It does. It could be another woman. Could yeah. be another brown person. Could be a queer person. Could yeah. be a I don't even know, like some other thing, but just not like a typical straight white guy, you know. And so, or in the cookbook world, often it's a typical straight white female. Like, mm-hmm. but. I think a lot of that means changing who's in power. So I'm really curious to figure out how do we diversify like publishing houses, you know, because in all of the publishing houses that I've ever visited, which is close to two dozen like different kind of meetings that I've had with various editors and publishers over the years, I have only ever met one editor who's not white so and they're and they're the ones that give the green light and they're this the is ones why who i buy always the books. say yeah. there's not a pipeline problem there's a green lighting yeah problem. totally so that's part of it and then also now you know and i cannot say enough good stuff about netflix like okay. the documentary studio at netflix is the most amazing place that i have ever entered <laughs> like really? i why? feel so well um of probably 20 people, you know, who've worked in different roles on my on my show. Three were white men, none were straight. <laughs> and everybody else was a woman. And probably 80% of those women are not white. Yeah. So. Um, What's that like on, to be in a. It is like heaven. Okay. It is heaven. It's heaven to be around people of, of all different backgrounds. Yeah. Of all different like stories in their mind. Because then there's a way where when you are in a room, there's not one dominant narrative. I love it. You know, you it's in thinking about how you said there's been think pieces written about just the fact that you're a brown woman doing a show like this. I was thinking about like food in my life and the people that I conceptualized food around. Like when you grow up, when you're a kid, when you think of food, you think of women. You think mm-hmm. of your mother. Mm-hmm. You think of your fam- like the matriarchs of the family in charge of the food. That's, that's the way it was for me, at least, right? And I feel like for most people. But something happens when you hit adulthood where immediately, not immediately, but over time, you begin to associate food or at least like the ideal of food and, you know, going out to restaurant food with men. Oh, yeah. chefs I have a lot to men. say about this. <laughs> what, what causes that switch Power and Why? money. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, like, um, I mean, I always, I always have say, like, if I were given a opportunity to return to graduate school, I would 
right. I'm, I would, I'm pretty sure you yeah. have the opportunity at <laughs> yeah, this point. But if, if, I, if, I, if that were a thing for me, I would yeah. do I would do my work on gender in the kitchen. And again, like I'm going to get some facts wrong here, but the general trajectory of human kind mm. <laughs> has been for you know about ten thousand years ago is when we be, we switched from being like hunter gatherers to agriculture as mm-hmm. our main source of food, where men you know bring home the meat and women cook it for the family. Yes. So like if your job you know to sustain your family was to I don't know stretch a pig for as many months as mm-hmm. you could, you found different ways to preserve it. You found ways to take like the grisly parts and make them delicious yeah. and something your kids want to eat. You and, and, learned yeah. to use all the stems of chard. And, and women led that. And women did that because that was the that was the thing, yes. right? So that's what we now call peasant cooking or mm. grandma cooking, mm. which gets like elevated and like often served in a fancy restaurant with like some pasta mm-hmm. <laughs> for forty five dollars or yeah. whatever, right? Yeah. Um, but then approximately three hundred years ago, two fifty years ago, was when restaurants became a thing, and huh. suddenly now there was money. And attention and power attached to this job that became a profession. Well, and the folks that could open restaurants were the folks that had power, which was probably men. Men, right. So at that time, kitchens became a place for men, you know. Hmm. And even traditional French cuisine, which is accepted by many people as the (laughs) standard. I love that eye right there. (laughs) I had to think of how to say it. But like, uh, you know. Um, is, you know, traditional French kitchens are called brigades, brigades, like, and the organization of chef, sous chef is modeled after the military. Really? So the idea of how a kitchen is run is very militaristic and that's in order to create order and organization. Yeah. But it's against but the it's evolutionary trajectory of food. Thing. Yeah. And of course, like this space was not really welcoming to women. And so an entire profession was born where, Men got the attention, men got the money, men got the stuff. And then that sort of has just continued on and on and on. What does it take to change that? I don't know. Right now I'm feeling very pessimistic. So I feel like the whole thing has to be burned down. What makes you feel pessimistic? I mean, well, I live in the Bay Area and our community has definitely been affected by like, there's just been a lot of um, women speaking up about abuse and harassment that they have, um, or, or that the like instinct isn't to be interested in hearing the stories of the people who have been victimized mm-hmm. at all. Like, mm-hmm. and so I, I, that's a big part of my my pessimism is just that, which is just one part of this. Also, like this way that, for example, just three crops in this country are subsidized by the government for farmers, while abandoning like all the actual vegetables, which corn, wheat, and soy. And so um, I just feel like right now I'm feeling very, and then there's climate change. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I'm just feeling, I'm just in a particularly pessimistic mode at this moment. And so sometimes when I'm feeling the weight of all of that, I feel like what I, the only thing I can do is what I can do, which is like get people excited to cook. It's interesting to hear you talk about being pessimistic about the state of your world, the food world right now, because the only way that I've known you since I've been consuming your work has been full of joy. Full of joy. <laughs> yeah, I am full of joy too. Um, it's, but I'm more than just you know, and that's a whole. This goes back to your last question about like how has my life changed? Yeah. You know, people watch the show and they feel like they know me, which mm. is wonderful and speaks to like how well they're you receiving. You did your job well. Yeah, and yeah. I did my job well, but also that's just one part of me. And so mm. 
I'm also like a highly neurotic person who's <laughs> done my homework for a really long time and and in general like puts a lot of thought into what I put out in the world. Yeah. On that note. Let's make some chicken. Let's make okay. some conveyor belt chicken. I love it. <laughs> All right, time for a break. When we come back, the chicken hits the skillet. And later, the story of how Samin got into cooking by stumbling into a job in one of the best restaurants in the country. All right, BRB. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Wix.com, a web platform for creating your own professional website. With Wix, whether it's your first time creating a website or you're a longtime pro, you can do it yourself. Choose from hundreds of stunning templates or start from scratch with drag-and-drop technology and powerful web features. Join over 125 million people already using Wix to create their own websites. Go to wix.com to create yours today. So what will you create? What has movies, television, music, and wild enthusiasm Pop Culture Happy Hour's 15 favorites from 2018. No disappointments and no mixed feelings. It's all gleeful gratitude as we gather to talk about our 15 favorites. Hear it now from Pop Culture Happy Hour. Okay, back in the kitchen with Samine. She brought her own knives. I love that sound. Anywho, we promised you a few cooking tricks in this conversation. Here is one. People think that the way to hold a knife is to hold the handle. Yes. Like put your, all four of your fingers around uh-huh. the handle. Yeah. That is not the way to hold a knife. Okay. Because if you do that, you don't actually get the dexterity uh, that you do it, and the control uh-huh. it, than you would when you pinch the blade, which I know feels really weird and scary. Like why yeah. would I touch the metal part? Yeah. But when you touch the metal part, all of the power is much more central to the, like I'm in, yes, exactly. And the first probably three weeks of doing this feels very awkward and then it becomes second nature. You just, you know, it's like, imagine holding a pencil toward the top. Why would you do that? You hold a pencil toward the bottom. Yeah. You know, you want to be closer to where you, you to want. To the tool itself. Yeah, to the tool itself. So, All right, now we're um, going to make Samin's so conveyor belt chicken. She calls it conveyor belt chicken because in spite of the recipe being so simple, a friend told her that it's so good, you'll want a conveyor belt to get that chicken into your mouth as quickly as possible. Okay, first we got to debone some skin on chicken thighs. Good job. Oh, I cut, I cut into the bone. No, you, you definitely didn't. Don't worry. Okay. That knife's not strong enough. <laughs> thighs, of course, then, are dark meat, like, unlike the more popular chicken, chicken breast, which is white meat. I always will choose chicken leg over chicken breast. and um, Put it there. Yeah. It's juicy. <laughs> it's juicy, juicy. Totally. And more breast, flavorful. Breast is and has fat. It's more fatty and Thank fat you. is flavor. Fat is flavor. So is salt. So uh, I take a generous pinch, mm-hmm. and then I'm not. No, what I'm not doing mm-hmm. is this. My like thumb forefinger pinch. Oh, that's really what I consider to be like specialized salting, mm-hmm. like individual precision salting. Mm-hmm. But we have you even have we like a, a whole cutting board of yes. chicken salt. So you're gonna do what I call the the wrist wag. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just sort of letting the salt. I'm wi- I'm not even moving my fingers. I'm, yeah. It's just I'm Your wagging wrist my wrist. Yeah. yeah. And it's just sort of flinging flinging out. There you go. There you go. So as the salt so settles on our chicken, it's time for heat. Which brings us to another cooking trick. Make sure your pan is hot enough. This is how I like to test a pan to see if it's hot enough. 
I just sort of splash a couple drops of water in there. Mm -hmm. Almost any time I'm going to put anything into a pan, and certainly any time I'm going to put meat into a pan, I want the pan to be hot before I add the the oil, and before I and the oil to be hot before I add the food. Yeah. If the pan is already hot, then the oil will heat up immediately. Mm-hmm. So, the and part of the reason, especially with skin on chicken, is that skin will stick to a cold pan. So we're just going to check. All right, we're getting there. One more time. Then the key to this whole recipe is cooking the chicken skin side down. That's the most fulfilling sound. It's so good. It means you're doing it right. (laughs) But here's the twist. Then Then you put another heavy cast iron pan on top of the chicken. So do you want to stick that thing on top, get your your foil pan and just lay it right on top? the second cast iron skillet wrapped in foil is going to go on top of the first cast iron skillet to mash the chicken down. Yep. So what happens with meat and skin, things with skin and protein is that that protein will initially stick to the pan, mm-hmm. but then once it sort of cooks part way and starts to harden, it'll peel off. Huh. I heard that change. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to start happening more. Ch-ch-ch-changes. But, you know, no oven, no stove burner is completely even unless you're using like a, one of those high-tech induction burners. Like mm-hmm. the So on this one, I don't know, that window's open, so maybe there's a breeze that we can't feel coming in and pushing mm. heat this way. Or maybe this pan isn't fully centered on this burner. So things are not going to cook evenly. But so we have okay. to move them around. That's okay. the solution. The point of all of this is to get the fat in that skin rendered down perfectly. Samin says you can actually hear when that happens. So the sound of the sizzle is completely different. Like the quality is to- because yeah. now it's just fat. There's no water left. Yeah. And that's just oil. In Samin's book, you serve this chicken with a simple herb salsa. But we had to make moves. Time was running short. So we let Trader Joe's, once more, save the day. We could just put some of the corn salsa. Yes, yes, yes. Trader Joe's corn salsa works just fine as well. Then we threw a few tortillas in the pan to cook them in that chicken fat for a little bit. It's going to take a minute. Oh, look, it's puffing up. puffing up. I'm into it. And then it's taco time. Oh, my God. That's oh good. <laughs> Yum. Mm-hmm. The fried tortilla is good. Mm-hmm. All right, time for one more break. When we come back, the story of how Samin got into cooking in the first place at the legendary restaurant Chez Panisse in Berkeley. BRB. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hey, y'all, Sam here once again asking for your money. Even a few dollars helps out your local public radio station, which in turn helps out this show. Give now at donate.npr.org slash Sam. Donate.npr.org slash Sam. Thank you. Post Tacos, I asked Samin to tell me the story of how she got her first job in a restaurant. It is a story with lessons about work and success and kindness, and it began with one meal. Samin was in college in the Bay Area at the time. She was studying English literature. She was not training to be a cook at all, uh, but she was dating this guy. Yeah, so he was from the Bay Area. Okay. And so a lot of what we did was go to his childhood favorite pizzeria or ice cream place or just all of the places he loved. And he had always wanted to eat at Chez Panisse, which is a restaurant in Berkeley that is an institution. It was opened in 1971 by Alice Waters, who's really in a lot of ways the progenitor of the farm-to-table movement in Mm -hmm. this country. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't know any of that. I just knew that it sounded expensive. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, and that my family had never paid, you know, $100 a person for dinner before. Mm -hmm. So it seemed out of the question for me. But he really wanted to do it. So we saved up money for seven months we had like a shoebox that we saved money in and we saved 220 dollars and we went to eat there and i was 19 i think he was 20 and so this was 20 years ago yeah and we were sitting in the downstairs dining room i was wearing a denim skirt he was wearing uh like and i had a black tank top i don't remember what he wore and but we were definitely not regulars okay you know like and i'm sure everyone who worked there could tell like we stood out as very young inexperienced diners Mm -hmm. and um to me what was really incredible about it wasn't so much like that the food was so great because my mom is a really good cook and i grew up eating really delicious food so it wasn't that this was the best meal i had ever had i had just never been in a restaurant where i felt so attended to and Mm. cared for and so that's part of what you pay for Totally, but like I just had never, I just did not, I didn't understand any of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything about it seemed so special, and the lights are like just warm enough, and there's these incredible flower arrangements, and it feels really personal, Mm -hmm. and that felt really special. And the dessert was chocolate souffle. Yes. Which I had never had before. And this was like so, a fancy souffle because like there had to be steps done to it, right? Yeah. So when they brought it up to, over new, to us, yeah. I wonder why she thought <laughs> it occurred to the server that maybe <laughs> I had never had souffle before. So she said, "Have you? would you like me to show you how to eat this? And mm-hmm. I said, yeah. So she said, you poke a hole in it with your spoon and then you pour the sauce in and that way every bite has sauce. It was like a raspberry Which sauce. Which I didn't know was a thing until I read your story. Yeah, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know. know, but I guess yeah. it's like, it must so, be like the classic French yeah. way of doing yeah and so um i don't think i've ever done it again since honestly i don't eat that many (laughs) souffles but like but uh and so i took a bite and she said how is it and i said oh it's really good but you know what would make it even better is a glass of cold milk because it was like this warm chocolatey thing you want cold milk like seems pretty natural but it's a shape and she's yeah totally (laughs) she totally was like what (laughs) and so she kind of laughed and she went and brought me a glass of milk and then she also brought us each a glass of dessert wine to teach us like the refined accompaniment yeah and much later like when i lived in italy a few years later i realized that milk is considered like to drink milk after 10 a.m. is a faux pas. Like it's mm. something that babies do, you know. Like, yeah. like uh, if you're an adult, like you know, um, gourmand, you would never drink milk after 10 a.m. So when yeah. Americans travel to France 
or Italy and order like a cappuccino or a cafe latte at 4 p.m. Like they're like drawing attention to themselves as Americans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you, do, and so because it's like I don't know, it's too heavy or something. Like that's why. Well, and also most folks don't realize they're secretly lactose yeah. intolerant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I came to that realization this year. I'm so hurt sorry. my heart. I'm so sorry. It was after an extra large Oreo Blizzard. Oh God! <laughs> and I was like, this is it. And scene. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> I feel you. I really do. Uh, Souffle. <laughs> and so then, no, yes. yeah. So anyway, so we had this really special meal, and I was so moved. And I always worked through college. I had a work study job, just like filing papers mm-hmm. before that. So I was like, maybe I can work here. And we had other friends who were bussers there. So I wrote a letter asking for a job bussing tables. Hmm. And when I brought it to the restaurant, they said, "Oh, you have to bring that to the floor manager." Mm-hmm. So I, she, they led me to her office, mm-hmm. and when she opened the door, it was the souffle lady. That had given so, her the milk. <laughs> yeah, totally. So she kind of remembered me, and I remembered her, and I'd written this like very earnest letter saying how moving this dinner had been, and could I please work there? And I'd never worked in a restaurant before, but I would try my hardest. And so she hired. She was like, "Can you start tomorrow?" Which now I understand to be like desperate restaurant manager speak of like, we, we need, need somebody. somebody. Can you start tomorrow? Yeah. But at the time it felt like the stars had aligned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I started busing tables the next day and I was an English major. I had never thought about restaurants or food or cooking or anything. And yeah. I felt at home in that. What I like about that story about this floor manager, not shaming you when you wanted your milk was like a certain kind of kindness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered when I was reading about it, I was like, what would have happened if they weren't kind to you? I don't know. It's good to be kind because it's good to be kind. Mm-hmm. But also, people don't even know it. Their kindness often opens up a door for someone else. Totally. Absolutely. You know? And I try to remember that. You know, a version of that that I'm experiencing these days yeah. is I write this column for the New York Times Magazine. Mm-hmm. And when I first started um, cooking, this very column was the column that I upheld in my mind as like the highest mm-hmm. echelon of food writing. Mm-hmm. And I've read it every week since I started cooking. And I always thought maybe one day I could have that column. Yeah. And so quite often mm-hmm. I'll get a message. Often it's just a one line message from the editor in chief huh. or from my top editor who's like one editor down. It'll be one line. It'll be like, wow, really good job this time. Huh. Or that was so delicious. Like I went home and made it. And I'll float for a week or for two weeks on that one line email. Yeah, just one little bit. It's a cup of milk. So now, like a friend reminded me that I'm that for other people. And Mm -hmm. so it's my job to be really aware to make sure that I'm doing that for other people. Yeah. Like, for instance, you complimented how I deboned that thigh. You did such a great (laughs) job, Sam. (laughs) It is, I mean, and like, just to go back to that story, just because like I could visualize it so clearly in my mind, but like that floor manager giving you that cup of milk. With the dessert line and saying, I'm going to show you both. Mm -hmm. It feels like that is a lot of your approach. Like, I'm going to meet you where you are, but I'm going to show you both both of these things. Totally. Yes. Yeah. And I feel, well, I just feel like shame is not a good teaching tool. Mm. Like, I just don't feel like telling people that they're not buying the right thing Mm. or that they don't like the right thing is going to win anyone over and make them want to listen to me. Mm -hmm. Also, you know what it is, is like for (laughs) salt, fat, and acid Mm -hmm. make food taste good. They Mm -hmm. make food taste good for humans. Yeah. And we as humans have evolved to crave those things. Yeah. Our bodies can't make salt. Mm -hmm. They can't make certain kinds of fat. 
So we crave eating them, you know, and that fat is what powers us. And it completes us. Totally. And acid is what brings contrast. You know, acid makes our mouths water. So when we say something's mouthwatering, mm-hmm. it's because it's acidic. And huh. so you already know so much of what I am teaching. People already know that, even if they don't care about cooking mm-hmm. and they don't want to care about cooking. Mm-hmm. And the example I always use is when you go to a Mexican place and you get a burrito and you take a bite and you're like, hmm, this is falling flat. How do I fix it? Lime. You're like, yeah, let me squeeze some lime. Let me put some sour cream. Let me yeah. put some guacamole. Let me put some salsa. What yeah. are those things? They're salt and fat and acid. Yeah. And so that's what makes food taste good. That's what makes pizza taste good. And all the things that we sort of want to eat mm-hmm. have those things in balance. And helping people realize that they already know that then maybe makes them a little bit more excited to put that information into use. Altogether, Samine stayed with me at Angie's house for like two and a half hours. I have not had an interview lift me up this much and make me smile this much in a very, very long time. One more. Oh, my goodness. You're the best. This was so awesome. Thank you. Before she left, Samine hugged everybody a few times. My colleague Angie, who lent us the kitchen, and her husband Daniel, and her son Hadley. She even left us a few Trader Joe's goodies. Do you want your corn salsa? Nothing. And then Samin Nosrat, the chef everyone's talking about right now, went out the front door to her rental car, this rental car full of pots and pans from TJ Maxx, and then Samin drove herself across L.A. in traffic to a book signing All right, drive safe. for a book that, as of this taping, the week before Christmas, was out of stock online. Many thanks again to Samin for dropping by. Thanks to Angie Hamilton-Lowe and her family for the kitchen. Thanks to producer Danny Hajek for recording this whole thing. And so many thanks to Brent Bachman for turning a two-and-a-half-hour conversation into this. All right, listeners, hope you're having a fantastic holiday week. This Friday, we'll post an episode that is our best attempt at a wrap of the entire year, 2018. We'll try to make sense of the wacky year that was. It'll be fun. I promise. Thank you for listening. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Happy Christmahana Kwanzaa. I said it right. Happy Christmahana Kwanzaa. Talk soon. Say hi, Happy. Hello. <laughs> I wish there was vision of these like suspicious <laughs> eyes right Go now. Go shake Samin's hand. <laughs> That's to me. Hi. Nice to meet you. How old are you? I am nine. What's your favorite food to eat, Hadley? Just like tell me. Um, some. Sushi by far. Sushi? Oh, is that, why, is that why there's a drawing of sushi on the fridge? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on my dad's birthday. <laughs> is there a kind of sushi you like? Um, yellowtail rolls. Oh my lord. He knows. <laughs> he knows, yeah. He knows. Do you put wasabi and spice sauce and ginger or like a This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. 
Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.